0: All right, so it's Thanksgiving week, and nobody is here at the Stereo Embers, the podcast offices. It's just me. I'm all by myself. Everybody went home for the holidays. I get it. But they're all gone. Our sound editor, our producer, our social media gang, our three interns, nobody is here. It's just me and this box of donuts that I brought in for the staff. Well, now it's a half a box of donuts, but that's not the point. The point is... There were donuts, and now there aren't as many. Uh, so I don't get the benefit of the hive mind today, but I have another hive up my sleeve. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Walter walked
1: into his cage, made up his
0: of holy hive a band which features my guest today on the program homer steinweiss let me tell you a little bit about holy hive and homer steinweiss based out of brooklyn holy hive are a truly singular outfit formed in 2015 their innovative brand of neo-folk is both spare and rich incorporating elements of turkish funk chicano soul lo-fi pop, and traditional American roots music. Singer Paul Springs' falsetto floats with the kind of effortless finesse that falls somewhere between Brian Wilson and Shuggy Otis. Meanwhile, drummer Homer Steinweiss, who has sat behind the kit for Lady Gaga, Amy Winehouse, Sharon Jones, Adele, and Bruno Mars—my God, that is a resume— Plays so deep in the pocket, the groove it yields is sheer percussive bliss— He's an extraordinary player whose instincts and inventions make him one of the best drummers around. Their debut album, Float Back to You, cashed in on the promise of their harping EP, and their self-titled second album was a quiet and stirring revelation. They also put out an instrumental version of the album, which is an equally stirring companion. And Homer Steinweiss, a great conversational companion. So let's get to it. Here's me, and Homer Steinweiss of Holy Hive, having a chat. Right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast.
2: years now about and I've really kind of moved my operations to recording from touring you know when I first started I was a real road dog and you know over the past 10 years I've made the conscious switch to like make music in my studio and and not tour as much because the touring lifestyle is just not really working for me and so this pandemic as much as it makes me worried about a lot of different things in general as far as like my job it's kind of like still just going the same like I make money on you know record royalties and writing songs and doing session work and you know I'm still doing
0: all that stuff you know so I'm okay you're okay yeah (laughs) What what about the road life wasn't really working for you um
2: so I guess you know I guess I'm like kind of like on the introvert extrovert borderline I'm a little bit of both but I think when I was on the road that introvert side of me was just like you know was coming out and it just was really hard for me to find my own time my own private time on the road you know when I when I toured a lot it was with bands just that were ten to fifteen people, two tour buses, you know, and that type of thing. It can be really fun, but it's also just it can be really taxing when you're, you know, I'm just a homebody. Like I miss, I miss my lady at home. I have, I've had this same. My fiance, we're not married, but we were engaged, and you know, we've been together for like twenty years and almost. And you know, when we first got together I was touring a lot and it was a really hard relationship and I had a dog and I missed my dog and I missed my girlfriend and then ultimately ultimately like there's not a lot of creative work when you're touring you know what I what I what I consider like touring is like it's the work of performing you know and while I like performing I, I much more like being in the creative mode where I'm creating and trying to make something new as opposed to performing something and trying to perfect the performance so that's it's part of the craft i like more is the studio
0: part so it made sense to try and switch i always think about how some musicians are able to write on the road um mm-hmm. then i always go into that that journey song uh, faithfully <laughs> which is about you know, about missing missing home while on tour and that song sounds like it was written on tour although it may not have been um, yeah i know people can do that they can, they can carve out a creative space in a non-creative space um, yeah in, in a working environment i i don't i know not everyone can do that that seems like it takes a special kind of thing to be able to do yeah i mean look when i was on the road i was writing some songs
2: and you can create that space but At the end of the day, your job is about an hour to two hours on stage, and the whole rest of your day is based around that. So, you know, if you could find time to go for a job, or if you could find time to talk to your girlfriend, or you could find time to write a song, those things are all good. And you can do all those things, but at the end of the day, all your real energy is being focused to those like two hours. Mm. And it's like, I don't know, it's it's like when you're at home and you're writing songs, like I could literally, ha- then I could switch that up. So maybe my songwriting only gets two hours, but those that's where all the rest of that stuff I do during the day, like that's where like, it gives me the energy to actually have those two hours of creative space where I can work. You know, yeah, does, that, does that make sense?
0: It does, because what it means is when you're on the road you have basically you, you're giving yourself another job to do because like exactly right yeah yeah that yeah. makes sense and
2: personally like i'm i'm not a workaholic i like I, I i have like a bunch of different hobbies and interests and i love to work i love I, i'm so happy that i work in music but like i also like to do a lot of other things and a lot of the people i know who are writing on the road they're the people who are writing all the time, who are in the studio all the time, who are just basically the type of people who are just constantly working. And for whatever,
0: whatever it's worth, it's just not me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's sort of like the Woody Guthrie, the rambling life of get out there onto the American road and, and yeah. about being on the American road. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, I've always got my head around the idea that, um, you know, when you are on the road and you have to perform, you really have to sort of get into the headspace of the performance and to sort of also be crafting work for a later date to be recorded. Or, I mean, again, that's just two different jobs. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I get it.
2: Yeah. And the best thing that you can be doing is writing kind of for that project because then you can, then you kind of start, you're in the same zone at least, you know? Um, but for me, like when I was torn with adaptings, Kings, I was like, maybe writing for other projects and stuff. So that makes it even harder. So,
0: yeah. And also, I mean, to your credit, and this is something I've been struggling with and I, you know, I, I feel like I finally am getting really good at it, but it's taken me, mm-hmm. I just turned 50. So it's like, it's taken me 50 years. And what I'm getting yeah. at is saying this situation is not good for me and I'm going to walk away from it. Um, yeah, you know, learning to say no, not being future blind. So for you, the fact that you could say, you know, what this isn't really the best space for me. I think I'm going to go this yeah. direction. I I really admire the fact that you're able to have that vision.
2: Thank you. I mean, like, I I have a similar struggle saying no and recognizing that as well. But sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't even get to like, you don't even really get to decide. You just you just like kind of lose it you know and and it's just like it just decides for you
0: that's also true that organic thing steps in it overrides because i'm i'm like a nervous jewish guy and i i always feel bad about things and i but you're right like when the organic thing overrides the jewish operating system of like okay forget it you have no choice here we're just, we're just going to move this direction i almost feel that's a relief
2: yeah yeah,
0: it's a, and then you can look back
2: at it, and then you could be like, hey, maybe it would have been more healthy if I just said no, as opposed to letting myself break. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. it's a good thing to be able to say no and figure out what's healthy for you and what's not.
0: Well, I also think that it provides you a well-boundaried life where you don't, you're not doing things that are making you uncomfortable, and you can, you can sort of operate at that point then in a more optimum way.
2: Yeah, I agree with that for sure. It's it you know, if you have the luxury to be able to to say no to things and really focus on what's healthy for you, like I think that it's an amazing it's amazing to set those boundaries. I really do. I mean it's it's I'm I'm super blessed that I've been able to do that in my life.
0: Yeah, just as you have, to have you know, you have to have boundaries with people, you also have to have boundaries around the processes in your life. And I think that's a really yeah. That's something I never really thought about before. Yeah, totally. It's really cool. Um, how are you creatively? Are you do you feel at this point in your life, do you feel more energized than ever about what the possibilities are for the future?
2: Um, I'm actually in this very moment in like kind of a creative lull. Mm -hmm. Um I think it has to do with um kind of what where i spent my time in in quarantine and then and then kind of the political moment with the black lives matter movement and sometimes like all i want to do is be in my own world and discover my own creativity and work on my own projects and sometimes it's just time to like listen to what other people are doing and so when i when i sit down to write a song or work on a song, I, I'm getting distracted really easily because I, I just think that it's not my creative moment. But that's not to say I'm, like, in a bad creative spot. I think I'm just, like, take, putting it down so that I know when, when it's time to start getting creative again, like, you know, I'll have a little bit of perspective from it.
0: Do you think a creative lull is as much a part of the process as being on creative fire? So I'm a strong believer in, like, the balance
2: of you know everything in life so you can't have something amazing without having something also terrible you know yeah. it's like so it's like you can't have those moments of great great creative strength and power without moments of creative lulls so in a way yeah it's probably just as important but uh, even though it doesn't feel like it is because the important part feels like when you're working and creating but sometimes those moments aren't allowed to live without those lulls.
0: Yeah. I'm a writer. And there are times where I know what I'm writing is absolutely ghastly. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, I also know that I have to do it because that ghastly feeling is the perfect counterpoint to that victorious feeling of when you get it right. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I love,
2: I I love the process. I also love the process of just writing terrible stuff. I mean, one of my favorite philosophies of like creative work is uh this chef named Kenny Shopson. Have you ever heard of him? No. Uh he he owned like a little cafe in he recently passed away, but in in Manhattan. And when I was a kid we used to go there and he's a very eccentric, dynamic guy and he ran this very unusual place. Um it's worth checking, just reading about it. The place is called Shopson's. But anyway, he wrote a book later in life about his creative process as a chef. And he talked about how most of the time was just just doing the same thing over and over again and trying, and he said, you know, most of the time you create crap and then every once in a while you, you create something new and it's good and it's worth it. And I think that's, it, it hits the nail on it. It's like when you're trying to make something really, really good, you have to fail a whole lot of times to get there.
0: Have you become a good arbiter of, like when you create something, do you know, can you be the editor and the creator or do you have to play it for your fiance or do you have to run it by a friend or do you know instinctively, like I've done it or right, or this needs work?
2: Oh, I know. You know. <laughs> I know, but that's not to say that I'm always right. I mean, sometimes I... I feel like, oh man, this is the best thing I've ever done and people don't really respond or I, a week later, I'm like, wow, that was wrong. But like, when I feel like I've done something that's really good, I'm able to, at least, I usually think it's not that good. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So maybe if I did something that I thought was bad and I throw it away, maybe it would have been good, like someone else but at least as far as like getting the approval like needs to like have my stamp of approval and I
0: trust I trust that stamp right like it had to make it past you first to yeah be considered by somebody else and then somebody might give you some thoughts or some notes on it that might make you go one way or the other yeah <laughs> yeah right? exactly well it's funny I just do you ever do you ever like listen to
2: Spotify and that genius thing comes on yeah um well i always think that's a really interesting way to get to learn about music that i don't know that much about and i happen to be listening to like this mob deep track oh shit, what was that track called uh shook ones uh, i was reading a book where they referenced this song and i was, I, it was like i got to hear the song so i was listening to it and a genius came on and and for for Mob Deep, for the guy who produced it, oh man, I forget the name of the producer. Um, so I'm looking this up right now. Uh, okay, I think it was Shook so Ones. I could be wrong, but anyway, the the bit on Genius was saying that he was going to throw the beat away because it was just like whatever, it's just another beat that he like, And someone walked in and was like, "This is the this is the best beat. You have to keep this." And that that was a thing that actually changed their career. So sometimes the things you throw, the things you criticize yourself, sometimes it's really good to have that to step out and play it for someone else and be like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not the best arbiter of my own work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know I, it seems like there's a little gray area where you probably are right. Right, and then there's a gray area where you're being hard on yourself or you're, maybe you're just in a space where you just don't think you're creating in an optimum way, and it yeah. takes an outside external uh, person to say, hang on a second, don't throw that beat away.
2: Yeah, and this is also really interesting for, as a songwriter, I feel like I have to do a lot of that myself, but as a drummer, because I also do a lot of work just like drumming and performing and doing session work. I do much better when someone's telling me if I got a good take or not. Like when I have to produce my own drumming, that's when I'm a mess. Cause I'm just like picking apart everything. But if someone else is producing me, I can do a take, not think about it. And they could tell me when it's good. And I have a real, I, I, I don't know until they tell me. So I guess when I answered that, I was, uh, I was a little, confident because I think a lot of times I actually don't
0: know <laughs> are you uh, and it sounds to me like you're very good at taking a note I mean and that's a really good I think that's a very important um, quality because a lot of people who listen to the program are young up-and-coming musicians or artists and I mm-hmm. think it's really really important to be able to take a note although it may hurt a little bit <laughs> Have you, yes. am I right about that about you? And have you always been good in that way? I mean, I would like to think that um,
2: I do really enjoy like constructive feedback and, and hearing what other people have to say. And I mean, I just feel like in general, as a human being in the world, it's all about like, you know, understanding that it's like, you never really know the answer to anything and having an open mind. And listening to other people say I really think it's huge for all aspects of my life and definitely as a musician like you know if people give me feedback or really try and listen to it
0: I I'm always really interested in daily practice Mm -hmm. and you know for me as as a writer um, I think I could be better I don't write every day I think about it I'm always thinking yeah and I think thinking about it is the, is part of the process, um, or so I rationalize to myself when I have when I'm not doing it. Um, but what? How are you in terms of daily practice? Are you pretty regimented? Are you pretty consistent? Um, um, no, you're
2: not.
0: <laughs> um, I'm actually really bad at
2: that, and it's something I would like to get better at because the times I have little moments of it, where like if I'm working on a song that if I get an inspiration for something, I know I want to write the song, then for every day of that week, I'll work on that song first thing when I get up. And then when the song is finished, I just fall off, even though I know that was the best way to get to where I need to get to, I just have a really hard time. Um, but I do 100% believe in it. I mean, I, I play tennis, and it's like one of my passions as a hobby. And the only way to get good at that sport is to just keep playing it yeah and if you play it every day you just get better so I know that if I sat down and worked on my music every day I would get better in it but I, I don't know something something is it, it holds me back sometimes there's all these other things in life and I it's just I get a little afraid and I just don't do it every day and then but I know I'm not doing I, I don't know why it's, it's a crazy psychology if you really step back and analyze it it's like you know this is my job. I maybe could do way better if I just set two hours a day at it. Why don't I do that? But yeah. I don't
0: I'm imagining that when you were a kid, you must have been pretty disciplined as a musician.
2: you know <sighs> I don't think discipline is my best This um, is my best characteristic. I think I had really encouraging parents, and like everyone always believed in me. Like my parents always like really. Like they really wanted me to be music, they really wanted me to play music and be creative. So every little crappy thing I did, they're like, "This is amazing," <laughs> <laughs> um, and that might have given me like the confidence or encouragement to do what I do in a certain way. But I also think that the the genre that I play and the the instrument that I play it allows for really it allowed me to to do a decent job without having some type of discipline, without having a super amount of discipline. And I kind of say that with like some caveats, like I was surrounded by these like amazing musicians growing up and I still work with them. Like, I still like all the guys I went to high school with and played music with, I still play with. And these guys, you know, my friend Leon and Nick, and Tommy, these guys knew they were going to be musicians like from day one. Like they were just so dedicated and so good. And I was just like, kind of happened to play the drums and it wasn't like, to me, it wasn't my, it didn't, I didn't think I was going to do that. You know, I was like, oh, like my parents wanted me to play an instrument. I'll play drums. Seems like fun. And I played drums and I became like the drummer in all these bands. And then, and I and I think I was okay. I don't think I was like particularly good or bad, but I was good enough to be like the drummer that people wanted in their high school band. Because you know, there wasn't that many drummers. And, and so I was, I was only when I went on the road with Sharon Jones and Dab Kings that I like played drums every night for months in a row. And I think that's what made me like become better because i was like almost forced discipline because you had like when i would get on the stage i joined this band and i i loved the, playing with the Dap kings and but it was really difficult because I just wasn't that good so everyone would be like yelling at me and stomping their feet and saying pick up the tempo slow it down stay mm-hmm. steady and i think that in a way just like sometimes like the discipline comes from within and that then i call it discipline but this Kind of came from without, so it was more like some type of forced discipline where I just like had to do it, had to get on my feet, and figure it out
0: to get the gig with Sharon jones though you you we were no slouch, um, so obviously they saw something in you how, how did that come about? so
2: I played in an organ band called the Mighty Imperials with my high school buds, and these are the guys who I still play with um, and we got picked up by the label that it used to be called Sharon Jones and the Soul Providers and they used to play around town. We were into this very specific type of music. It was like this rare funk from the 60s and early 70s and we became a fan. And this was a small like kind of subculture in New York going on. So we jumped on this label when we were like 16 and Sharon was on a label and we were on the labels called Desco Records. And then like a couple years down the road, Desco Records kind of collapsed. And one of the owners, Gabe started the Dap Kings. And part of that, was, like the other owner of Desco was the drummer with Sharon Jones and the Soul Providers. So when he started Tone and Dap Kings, he needed a drummer. And I was like the other drummer in that scene at the time. And he liked the way I played. So even though I wasn't like what I consider a great drummer, I had like the the, the knowledge of that style of music and like the feel was kind of there and he liked it. So he kind of took a chance on me
0: as it were. Did drums for you always feel like the natural instrument or were you did you secretly have other aspirations or when you got behind the kit did you go, this is really where I'm most comfortable?
2: Um, I think I secretly still have aspirations <laughs> to do other stuff. The reason I chose playing drums was because my parents said like, okay, you're 10 years old, you have to play an instrument. And they were actually piano teachers um, on the side. Like uh, my they were both studied classical piano. So I was surrounded by like pianos and they had tried to teach me piano and it just w- didn't get into it. And I went to a jazz concert at my sister's high school and there was a conga player. And it was just like, it had a really, I guess when I was 10, I was just drawn to the sound. So I was like, I wanna play congas. And, uh, I learned, I took lessons at congas when I was like 10 wow. and I, and I liked it. And then my conga teacher moved to Africa and I remember like crying <laughs> because I was going to miss this guy. And my parents were like, well, we'll get you a new drum teacher. But like, I guess there was no other conflict around. I don't, I don't really, not in charge of figuring this out. So they're like, oh, we'll give you this guy. This guy was like drum set guy. And so he gave me like a drum pad and some sticks. And I was like, now we're gonna learn this. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I just stuck with it. Cause it was like, it was fun. But, you know, it's, I love, I love doing the drum thing, but like, I do struggle creatively sometimes as a drummer because I always want to like write the melody or like have a bass line and I think secretly like re- I, I play guitar and bass but too like secretly in my head like I just want to be like the guitar player
0: you know yeah yeah this is must be a very rudimentary question but I wonder in a musical situation the drummer what is the most important relationship for the drummer in a live setting like who on stage is there? Are they looking to the most? The drummer? Yeah. Um,
2: I guess that depends on the band, but um, I think the singer is the most important thing that a drummer needs to focus on, because the singer is, unless you're playing an instrumental band, of course, the singer is like what you're there to support. And if your singer is unhappy, Um, you're not you're doing a bad job you know because like the singer like what you're supposed to do is like make a beautiful bed for the singer to lie on and like they should be able to or whatever you want to call it like you know a train for them to ride like they should be comfortable and not have to think about what they're standing on they should just be able to go and if the singer is looking back at you because the tempo is wrong or because it feels funky it's like I think that that's your first indication that you're you're not paying attention in the right way um and then yeah it, it's nice to link up with you know a good bass player or a good percussion player it's always really fun to link up with those people in terms of just like getting into a group but as a drummer i think you're there to support the people in front so i think you have to really pay attention to that first i want
1: to go outside.
0: you were saying you play other instruments do you yeah you write from a drumming perspective or do you write from other perspectives
2: as well I mean I primarily write from other perspectives Um, I think that drumming although very important in the process of songwriting in a lot of respects it's it's a hard place to start um, because you know there's not a lot of melodic elements to to the to the drums that you could build a song around. So, I do like to start from like a piano or a guitar, or
0: or the words. I grew up in the '80s and I was a huge REM fan. They were they were my guy. Yeah. And you know, and when Bill Berry left the band, he was my favorite drummer. And when he left the band, I was really crestfallen. But I thought, well, you know, out of all the people to go, I guess I can live with that the most because the other guys mm-hmm. seem so indispensable, right? Um and boy was I ever wrong. Because when he yeah. left that band, that band never sounded the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm still trying to get my head around that. I'm not going to put it on you to explain it to me, but can you at least try? Like like what what happens when someone when you realize that Bill Barry was such an, an important part of that band, they really couldn't afford to lose him? What what happened? Well, I think that's kind of a beautiful
2: thing to say. And this actually speaks a lot to like my my theory on the drums. Like, although writing a song from the drummer's perspective with the drums at the beginning is not something that I do, I do strongly believe that whatever drummer's in the room, whatever drummer is playing your song with you, he's really contributing to the how that song sounds. And, you know, if you, you know, one of my all time favorite drummers is Ringo Starr. And a lot of people like are like, yeah, he's not much of a technical drummer. But like, if you listen to like the drum parts on Beatles records, you could hear how musical and how part of the song his his parts were. But I think it goes deeper than that. And it's really just like the feeling that a drummer to the song, like, you know, writing a drum part can be really basic it can just be like boom whack boom whack boom it's like literally that's the whole thing for four minutes but that decision to do that for four minutes without playing a fill without doing any variations that could be very crucial to the whole song and so if if i was to go into a session someone's working on a song and they're like hey you want to help me put this together you know, working on the song, I'm like, sure. And I play that for like three or four minutes and we record it and I just play the same thing. I will honestly be, if that's the version that they want to put out as like the original version of the song, I will be like, you know, throw me some songwriting. Like this this is the sound of the song. And some people, you know, have a really hard time with that because they're like, you didn't do anything. You just played the most simple drum part. Maybe if you played something really creative, I could give it to you. you just played something really simple and it's like yeah but the song didn't call for something really creative there and and you know i really think that you know obviously the theory of what a song is is it the chords and the lyrics is it the recording is it this is it that i think you can get into that debate but ultimately like in our day and age like for me the song is like the recorded composition that the band releases like and for me, I think the drum part is just as important as every other part. Sometimes it's the most important part
0: i look I think about someone like Amy Winehouse who
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think of her like when I read her lyrics, they feel percussive to me. So mm, yeah. I imagine there must be some people that it seems easier to sort of build the beats around because they're they're beat even like Paul Simon, who might be not an obvious example, but when I read his lyrics. I can hear his voice. I don't hear anybody else. I can hear his phrasing has a percussive element. I think Dylan's the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I put Amy Winehouse up there with The Masters. I, mean, I, I just think, I think she was one of the greats. Yeah, yeah pretty you know, genius. Gen, utter genius. And I I, yeah. I I think Back to Black is as strong as any album ever made. Um, yeah. that's Her writing was kind of percussive. So is it true, do you think that, when you're working with some people, building the beats around what they're doing is almost easier than others. Definitely. Yeah. If you have like if you have that percussive
2: element in your in your vocal part, all you have to do is complement it. If you don't have any of that, it's like you have to create it. You know, it's I think that's it's really good to listen to hip hop for like listen to percussive vocals because it's amazing how I mean, these, like, basically any, like, good MC, they just have amazing rhythms that, and where they put it and where they phrase it, it's, that's that's the, uh, you know, that's the song, in my opinion, is like, that percussive phrasing. And then for me, like, one of the greatest of all time, like, every time I listen to James Brown, like, one of my all-time favorite, Artists and singers and songwriters and just a just a big influence on my whole like musical path. Like the way he just says like a grunt, where he puts that grunt is like that's the whole freaking song. I mean, you could the lyrics almost mean nothing in in James Brown music. It's like sometimes the lyrics are you know so simple, but it's really just the, the phrasing of those lyrics. And it, it's like he's just like this ultimate drummer. Like if you really wanna talk about like percussive singing, it's like James Brown is just like the master, you know?
0: Yeah, because those grunts are
2: lyrical. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's how you can think about a drummer like for R.E.M. He's like a lyrical drummer and he's contributing all his his accents that are coming from him. And of course the band is never gonna sound the same with some other personality doing that you know it's, it, there's no way it's it's just like you're you're taking away a whole person a whole personality from the rhythm of the song
0: yeah and it's not as though they didn't have the money to have like great drummers step in they got some amazing people right it wasn't like they yeah. didn't have access but it's just a different person and so it doesn't it's just,
2: it just it's just a different person exactly it doesn't it doesn't matter it's that every person has its own unique feeling to the what they bring to the instrument. It's really it's really fascinating once you take out the drummer because then the then the drums, you know, their personality changes a little bit because it's it's all computerized. But even then, the person who decides to program those certain accents, it's the same thing. All of a sudden, like you listen to like Drake producers and these guys and the way that they move, the way that they put all the Hi hats on the grid—it's so unique and musical, and you know, that's those guys are some of those are some of the most successful songwriters in music right now are the people who are writing drum programming for pop pop hits and stuff.
0: I chatted with uh, Todd Suckerman from uh, Sticks. Mm. Mean, I don't know if you know that guy. Uh, his drumming, but um, he's pretty astounding. And he, yeah. he was telling me that one of his favorite albums is a walk across the rooftops by the blue nile and there's no like no drums on that album yeah and it's really interesting to sort of say like wow i didn't expect you to say that but he was explaining that there is a percussive element to that atmospheric thing that's happening totally yeah right
2: i mean a lot of my favorite music doesn't have any drums sometimes drums are just like too much i mean like I mean, like you mentioned Woody Guthrie at the beginning of this program, like Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, like all that traditional folk blues music, country folk, country blues. Like, who needs drums when you have like the best guitar, percussive playing, and just beautiful vocals? You know, it's sometimes needed, sometimes you don't.
0: And also, sometimes the absence of it is the presence of it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, how. How adventurous are you as a musician? Are you, are you willing, like whether whether it's with Holy Hive or with your own stuff that you're doing um, away from that? Um, how, in terms of the, you know, the canvas, are you willing to throw anything on there? Are you pretty? Are you pretty adventurous in terms of sonic choices?
2: I would say I think of myself as adventurous. At least I like to try different things. But if you listen to all the music I've produced it ends up having some like really like consistent elements like I'm down to throw anything on the track but I'll probably take it off if it doesn't sound a certain way and I'm not the I'm not the guy who's going to like smack you in the face with some sound you never heard before probably I, I might try I'm down to give it a shot but I think I end up just being a little bit more traditional in in the stuff I bring the stuff I ended up put, putting out but I definitely am adventurous as I, I would make an album in any genre you know I, I I, grew up with funk classic funk and soul as like my backbone but you know I I've made a, a Greek disco record and I made kind of a you know some pop records and yeah, you know, I recently made this kind of experimental record with this artist Erica Spring, and I, you know more folk records with Paul Spring. I, I, I love trying everything out. and I'm not one to just stick to one one thing, so I try to be adventurous.
0: Greek disco. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, this this artist named Monica with a K um, hit me up like. I don't know, 10 years ago. And it was when I just started producing records and she wanted to, she's kind of big in Greece or she's very big in Greece, but she, no, you haven't heard of her outside of Greece and she wanted to make a record in New York and she asked me to produce it. And it was kind of on a whim. And we made a really fun record it's called secret in the dark and it's kind of all over the place. And it, you know, at the end of the day, it's like Greek disco is the best way to describe it.
0: Yeah. Does everything that you do inform the next thing you're going to do? Like, do you feel that you're you're part of, um, a, there's a narrative that's at place where, like, the Greek disco thing actually sounds really interesting. Do you think that you also took that experience and built, um, moving forward, that you built your own um, aesthetic, It's sort of your set, how can I say it, your aesthetic kind of expanded because of that experience?
2: Yeah, I think you can't help it have like a narrative to your life even though if you can't you can't say what it's going to be but if you look back on it it's like you do one thing you don't know where it's going to lead you but that obviously influences the next thing you do and so if you look at it you could tie it all together and it's like you know making that Greek record was I would have never predicted making that record and even when we predicted doing it and even, even when she asked me to do it we started talking about it I wasn't predicting that it would come out good. And then once we finished it, like I've never been more proud of a record at the time when I made that record. And I still go back and listen to it. I'm just so impressed. And I think it really opened up a lot of different opportunities for me creatively and like what I I can do, you know?
0: Are you a pretty patient guy? Because I would imagine being a producer, I think patience, it seems like a very important element.
2: I think yeah. I think I am. I.
0: I mean, I think I like to think of myself as patient. I was in the studio once with a friend of mine. She was making a record, and um, I looked around after about the fourth or fifth hour of cutting the same song, and everyone looked they're going to move their mind, but not the producer. The producer was like in the pocket, like okay, here's what we need to do. And I thought there—that's a very special kind of human being. Yeah, you know, I think
2: personally, I'm patient in general, and and I'm I'm okay at, at producing, but I think ultimately like producing for me is almost like a means to an end. Like my favorite thing to do is like create and write. And I think that allows me to do that more, you know? And so if like some, you know, all-star artist are like, I want you to produce my record. Like I'd probably say yes, because like, you know, I want the work. But ultimately, like I would rather him be like, "Hey, you want to write a song with me?" You know, because it's like yeah. producing is hard. It's like it it takes so much. You know, it takes so much out of me to produce a record, and some people are just it, that's just what they do. They just can do it. They just hear it and they know. For me, it's like I I really like I need I need to work on it so much, and really it it trains me. But yeah, you gotta have patience. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when you hear, like, let's just say, I don't know, three years from now, you hear a song that you produced, are you satisfied? Or do you kind of go, oh, I should have done that, or I should have done something else? Like, Or, or can you go, or can you be at peace with the final work?
2: Uh, yeah, I usually actually am at peace with it. It always sounds better, like, three years later. I mean, sometimes you hear them some things that you, uh, you cringe at but for the most part it's like you step you once you get that distance from it you forget about all those little decisions that were driving you crazy and you just get to listen to it and you don't even think about like oh i should have put a hi hat there or i should have taken out the bass part there you're just like oh that's what it is now it exists it's not a work in progress whereas when i'm working on something i'm in the middle of it i'll listen to it one month and i'll be like oh this sounds pretty good and then i'll listen to it Two weeks later and be like, God, I gotta do this again. You know, it's like every time I hear it, I hear something different. And then once it's out, it's like that's complete. That's what it is, and appreciate it for what it is.
0: Now you grew up in New York, yeah? Yep. And how how did New York inform your musical sensibility? Or do you or do you because I'm a Californian and you know, I definitely think that what I've been drawn to um it has really been based on my geography. Um, mm-hmm. You know, did you did you ever think about that? Like, how New York has been a part of your aesthetic as well? Definitely.
2: I mean, how can how can it not be? Um, I guess like it's also like you know the time period in which you grew up in as well. You know, it's like a combination of the time and the place, especially you know as the world gets more global. Because I feel like in New York like all me and my friends would do when we were kids was like play video games and maybe that was happening around the whole country but we were playing like NES games and it was like Super Mario Brothers and all these really basic games and that was like my first besides my parents playing music in the house that was my first like just saturation of music and culture you know because it was yeah. like hanging out with people listening to music but it, really was just like Nintendo music, but it really had a big effect on me. And then once, you know, I started actually playing music and going to high school, I mean, it was like I was in all these bands around the city and I was into like punk music and I would go to like punk shows and stuff. And then all of a sudden, like there was like a jazz band at my high school and I switched from being into like punk and grunge into like jazz and funk. And so all these things are happening around, and I'm taking all these influences, and then inevitably, like, the whole city is just listening to, like, hip-hop. And it's like, that's the soundtrack of New York. Like, no matter how much other great music is around, it's like, what you hear on the streets is, like, hip-hop, you know? Yeah. And... And I never like honestly when I was in high school, I always liked a, like certain bops, like there's the hip hop songs that I would dig, but like I just never got too into the genre at that time because I was always into other stuff more. But I think, you know, I ended up being so into classic soul that was like where I ended up, and I think it's because like if I listened to to hip hop from the that era, like. All the hip hop that was being played, I know every single sample now. Back then, i I would just hear the shit in my the back of my head and be like, "Oh, that sounds cool." And now that I've like listened to this music for twenty years, I can pl- I can pick out almost all the samples because those songs, like, you know, those informed me as a drummer. Those informed me as a musician. It's just like you feel that beat, and it's like so you listen to like Wu Tang, like th- that's like the soundtrack of New York City in the '90s. And even though I didn't like, I wasn't like actively like putting Wu Tang in my Walkman. Now, like all the music that they sampled is like part of my library. So it just it has it just has to seep in in all these ways.
0: Or like the Beasties, like who the Beasties
2: were sampling was like. Oh yeah, you listen to the Beastie Boys, and those samples are just. I mean there's they're so I mean the samples on Paul's Boutique is all all great soul music and and you know it's it's almost like you like like you're drawn to those soul songs because you've heard them before in these contexts and like you you'll hear the soul song and you're like oh man I've heard this before but like it doesn't have any any Beastie Boys on it right and honestly it's like for me it's like like I love the BC boys, but like personally, like I, I would rather listen to like Dion Warwick, like sing a beautiful song than listen to like the BC boys, like loudly rap, like it's just a different aesthetic and it more speaks to me. And so when I can you know, get, get a little, I think the BC boys informed me finding Dion Warwick, but ultimately like that's what I would like put on my turntable, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. And what about you for goals for the future? Like, what are you, do you set goals for yourself? Do you think like that or do you just sort of take it as it comes? I,
2: I try to set modest goals. I really am invested in my Holy Hive project right now. I guess we haven't talked so much about that, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, we have our first album out a couple of weeks ago. I don't know when this airs, but you know, this year. And um, <laughs> I, I would like, you know, I would really like to make more Holy High Records and like make that band. Like hopefully, you know, in a couple album cycles, more and more people will know who we are and we can, you know, build our visibility and then continue to, work with other artists and play drums and produce records whenever I get that call, you know?
0: And Holy Hive, it would be nice if that was a touring proposition as well in terms of like, is that how you visualize it?
2: Yeah, I think that, so like I said, like
0: touring is not
2: my like main love. Yeah. But there there is a time and place for it. And I think one of the things that, one of the reasons that the Holy Hive I started it was I was like, Hey, if we ever get any tours this would be a lot easier than touring with 15 people you know yeah that's true. Like, like like if i'm going to start another band from scratch i'm going to do it so it's actually like feasible for me to hit the road every once in a while
0: There you go. Homer Steinweiss of Holy Hive, a really nice guy and uh, a remarkable drummer. Don't take my word for it. Go to holyhivemusic.bandcamp.com and buy some Holy Hive stuff. Climb in the – I was going to say go down the Holy Hive rabbit hole. But go uh, climb into the Holy Hive hive. How about that? And uh, poke around. Get some CDs. uh, You want to do digital? Yeah, you can do it digitally. Or there's a translucent pink – Blue splatter vinyl version of the uh, self-titled album. Get that. I did. And it looks super cool. It's very dramatic. It's not a color combination you would have found in the Crayola box, I don't think. Uh, Did they do combination crayons? I don't know. I'm out of the crayon loop. I've also had way too many donuts. I bought this huge box of donuts for my staff to celebrate Thanksgiving week. Nobody's here. And now I've eaten seven. (laughs) Which is, I you know, suppose better than crying a tear for each member of my team that's not here. I'm just eating a donut instead. Well, actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe the tear thing would have been the smarter way to go. Here's the weird thing. I'm eating a donut, you know, I'm on, say, number five. And there's nothing in my stomach that says, you're full. In my brain, I'm going, you should be full. But I'm not. I could eat 12 of these things. Sure, I'd probably pay for it later. Uh, But nothing is stopping me from just continuously eating donuts. That's worrisome. Uh, I'll get to that uh, at another time. Let me close the show here without talking about my fetish for donuts. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter for now. Look, I'm going to close that account out. Elon Musk is a freak, and uh, I'm not comfortable on that platform. Why am I still on there? Probably to stay in touch with you guys. But can we switch over and do something else? Snail mail? Is that too slow? All right. How about Instagram? I know Zuckerberg is not really that much better than Musk, but for now, he's musk light. So let's go with that, at Embers Podcast, uh, or email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Go to BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Uh, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, Rate and review and tell all your friends. I know you have so many of them. Tell every single one of them. And then tell them to tell all their friends. And pretty soon, I'll be taking over the world with this podcast. What's that going to look like? I don't know. Maybe a donut for everybody. Let's close the show with a longer listen to The Story of My Life by Holy Hive. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on bombshell radio